The scripture text this morning is from John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amen. You may be seated. Let's open up with another word of prayer. Father, may you send your spirit to give us understanding and even more so to help us know these, are, these truths we discuss are real. We invite you to come and make us yours. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We use the word maturity a lot of different ways in our culture. So we can sometimes talk about inanimate objects like food, meat, wine, as mature. It's a matured meat. It's an aged meat or it's a mature wine. Some wine's been aged. Uh, we can use it referring to living things like a tree. When a tree is no longer a sapling, we say it's a mature tree. It's, um, it's reached its, its pinnacle. We can even talk about things like neighborhoods, being a mature neighborhood, which I'm not even sure what that's supposed to mean, but I've heard it before. It's a mature city. And then, of course, we can use it referring to humans in all kinds of ways, too. So, for instance, when we speak of a 15-year-old, and we say she's very mature for her age, it means like she's very, she acts like a grown-up. Whereas if we use it for someone who is elderly, and we say they are at a mature age, it's a slightly different connotation. The first is almost always a compliment. The second one is a little bit more uh, ambiguous of what you're trying to get at. And then you also have physical maturity and emotional maturity and intellectual maturity, and there are books written on all these things. Use maturity in a lot of different ways, but how about spiritual maturity? We're in a short four-part series. We're looking at our church of values, and the first one we looked at was biblical faithfulness. That was last week. And today is spiritual maturity. It's one of the things that we as a church value. It's what we want to grow into. It's what we want to reflect. And so we're going to be looking at spiritual maturity this morning. Now, I want to define it very technically before we then unpack what it actually means. But just by the words, so we have spiritual maturity. So when you say spiritual, what does that mean? Well, it's not referring to kind of a vague transcendence, which is how we normally refer to that in our culture. People say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Okay, that's not what the Bible means when it says spiritual. 
The Bible has a very specific content. It means relating to the life and work of the Holy Spirit. When Paul says you are spiritual, he means you are people who are uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So it says spiritual maturity. It's, it's a maturity having to do with the life and work of the Holy Spirit. What does maturity mean? Well, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it as the quality or state of being mature. It's incredibly unhelpful. I hate it when they do that. So then you have to go to mature. Okay, what does mature mean? And mature means relating to a condition of full development. Someone who's mature is someone who's fully grown, fully developed, developed. So let's put these together. Spiritual maturity means someone who is fully grown or fully developed in the life of the spirit. That's the technical definition of spiritual maturity. Of course, what begs the question there is, so what is the life of the spirit that we're supposed to grow into and develop into in order to be spiritually mature? So we're going to be looking at three major functions of the spirit that pertain to our spiritual maturity, uh, works of the spirit that we're supposed to try to bring into our lives, we're supposed to live through to be spiritually mature. And this is going to be the outline for us this morning as well. So first, function of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit assures us of the gospel. Second, the Holy Spirit empowers us for Christ-like living. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit empowers us for mission. Um, Someone's probably going to notice this at some point in the sermon. I don't want you to be distracted by it. We will not actually look at the text that was read. We're looking at a whole bunch of texts, and um, that was just kind of, you know, for your listening pleasure, and it has to do with the Holy Spirit. But actually, I want you to turn to Romans 8, verses 15 to 17 for this first point. The Holy Spirit assures us of the gospel. I'm going to read it out loud for us. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So some quick explanation. Verse 15, he says, for you. So in this text, he's talking about the Christians that the Roman letter is being written to. In other words, this is true of all Christians. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption. What does that mean? Tell us in verse 16. It means we've received the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. To have received the Spirit of adoption means the Spirit is given to us to remind us, to assure us that, yes, you have been adopted by God. You are, in fact, His child. Now, I want to unpack this metaphor of adoption because Paul uses it at various times in the New Testament as a metaphor for what happens when someone turns to Christ in faith and repentance of, of, of how God then relates to us. And it's a powerful metaphor, and, and Paul uses it because it communicates two specific, very important truths. Adoption, just like at that time, would have been a very powerful act, would have certain cultural parlance, just like it does today. And adoption communicates two truths, which are then metaphors for the Christian life. First, adoption is by grace. No one adopts a kid based on their IQ score or based on their athleticism or their good looks. No one adopts a child so that they can have a conversation partner. 
The act of adoption is a one-way highway of grace from the parent to the child. Now, any parent will tell you there's a blessing being a parent. That's true. But the act of adoption in itself, that moment of adoption, that's a one-way road of grace. When a parent loves a child and brings them into their family. That's how God relates to us when we've turned to Christ in faith. What's the basis of our relationship with, it, with God? Is it this kind of continuing, I've got to keep doing stuff and, and, and doing more and, and, and this is my confidence? No. Once we've turned to Christ in faith, our, our, the, our relationship to God is based on him having adopted us into his family. Simply by his grace, it's not based on good or bad behavior. It's based on God having adopted us. That's the first truth that adoption teaches. It's by grace. Secondly, adoption is permanent. Russell Moore, who is the former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission with the SBC, his first two kids are adopted, and then he has three biological kids after that. And he, I heard him one time uh, giving an interview, and he said people would often ask him when they see all of his kids, they say, okay, but which ones are really yours? And he would, and they don't mean wrong, be very gently, but firmly tell them they're all mine. <laughs> they're all my kids. When you adopt someone, it's not like, hey, I'm, I'm babysitting, or this is some weekend help. You are now part of the family, legally, spiritually, emotionally. You're part of the family. It's permanent. When God adopts us, he's saying, you are my child. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter who you were. doesn't matter who you will be. You're my child, and I love you. And Paul uses this metaphor of adoption to teach us how God views us in Christ. And the Holy Spirit's role is to assure us of that. Again, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness. He's testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. Why is that? Because although we may have been adopted, it can often take a long time for us to really believe it. So Marco's youngest sister is adopted. She was adopted when she was one. And from the day that the judge ruled the adoption, she was a member of the Taylor household, a full-fledged member of the family. But yet, until she was maybe four or five, every time that Marco's parents would drop her off in nursery, she would scream. Because although she'd been adopted, it took time for her to believe that they were going to come back for her. She was truly adopted. She was a member of the family in every way possible. But it took a while for her to believe that. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. He assures us. He whispers to us. Yes, you are in fact God's child. We've all, you know, I don't, some of us may have been adopted. I'm not sure. But we've all experienced spiritual orphancy. No one is born into God's family. All of us are born, and in, 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 in from the moment that we can choose between good and wrong, we're separated from God. We, we've experienced spiritual orphancy. And so I think there's a little part in all of us that wonders, okay, is this finally what's put me over the edge? Or has God gotten bored of me? Is he moving on to bigger and better things? Maybe this was just kind of a temporary thing to begin with. And so the Holy Spirit whispers to us, you really are adopted. God is your father. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. 
And this is important. I'm beginning with this point first because this is the foundation of the Christian life. If, if, if this is not sure and certain, the foundation of everything, you know, if the foundation is not sure, the building will be, will be a, a weak. And when we're not convinced of this, when we're not convinced that God has adopted us out of grace, that he has made us his own, if we're not sure of this, it'll lead to us being deeply insecure Christians. And that insecurity can manifest in all kinds of ways. One way it can manifest is uh, Richard Loveless writes in his book, The Dynamics of the Spiritual Life. He says, when, when, when we're not sure about, about the gospel of grace, that God adopts us by grace, not by what we've done, if we're not sure of that, about that, believers can begin to seek to build a holiness formidable enough to pacify their consciences and quiet their sense of alienation from God. When we're not sure that God has adopted us, we begin to try to create a, an edifice of good works that is, that is impressive enough that we can say, look, God, this is why you can accept me. But in the presence of a holy God, it doesn't work. Or, again, if we're not grounded in the gospel of grace, the way we try to pacify our consciences is we just lower the bar. We minimize sin, we minimize God's holiness, we lower the bar until we can easily step over it. But of course, that doesn't work either because we all know somewhere in our hearts that sin is actually a pretty serious thing. There is something deeply broken within us. And so we're given the Holy Spirit who soothes our insecurities. He says, you are adopted by God. You are his beloved child. He loved you when you were dead in your sins. He loved you when you were running from him. He sent his son to die for you. There was no expiration date in that relationship. You're his child. And this is where spiritual maturity begins, full development in the life of the spirit. As we begin to believe the spirit's promptings, I am God's child. I am loved by God. We begin to grow in the freedom that comes from realizing that our worth and our loveliness and our acceptableness has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ and what he has done for us. Again, there's a reason I'm starting with this one. Because if this foundation is cracked, if it's not sure, we're going to begin to try to find our confidence in the other points I'm going to mention. And it's going to lead to a very unstable discipleship, unstable Christian life. We must be sure God has adopted us by grace. He loved us when we were running from him. He'll continue to love us, not based on our good works, but because he is our father. And that's what fathers do. They love their kids. That's the first point. The Holy Spirit assures us of the gospel. The second thing the Holy Spirit does that involves spiritual maturity is that the Holy Spirit empowers us for Christ-like living. Now we're going to go ahead and turn to Galatians 5 and spend a little time in there. Galatians 5, verse 16, and then verses 22 to 25. So follow along as I read it. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step by the Spirit. There's a promise in here. 
Paul says, again, under the inspiration of God himself, he says, walk by the Spirit. And the negative promise there is that you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And he lifts those all out, the works of the flesh, or, you know, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, etc., etc. There's a negative promise. You won't gratify the flesh. The positive promise is that you will begin to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, peace, patience. In other words, the promise is if you walk by the Spirit, the outcome will be a life that looks a whole lot like Jesus's did. Now I'm going to keep coming back to this again because it's, um, it's so hard for us to ground ourselves on that first point. And there's a tension in the Christian life where we recognize I'm adopted by grace. God loved me when I was unlovable. But yet how I live matters. And I want to please God. And, and the tension is how do, I, how do I accept that without at the same time then starting to subtly think, well, God's love towards me is somehow tied to how well my life is in order. And I think the answer to that tension is, okay, how do we pursue Christ-like living without losing the gospel of grace? The answer to that tension is that we walk closely with Jesus, or what Paul would call union with Christ in a more theological sense. Here's my point. Christianity is not, first and foremost, a creed we recite. Christianity has beliefs that are necessary, but it is not, first and foremost, a creed that we recite. Christianity is most basically an encounter with the risen Lord. That's where it begins. Not that we have to have a kind of mystical vision of Jesus Christ, but every Christian, there's a moment when you come to realize that you're in the presence of the Lord who came to redeem us. That we realize our sin, and, and whether it's, it's, it's through we're reading the scripture, or we're in church, or we're walking in the woods, we know we're having an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the Christian life begins. And every genuine encounter with Jesus Christ always has two aspects to it. Every genuine encounter. There are false spiritual encounters. Let's be clear about that. Uh, anyways, well, as a side, are, but every genuine encounter with Jesus Christ has two parts. One, it has a realization. As we come into the majesty of Christ, we realize there is nothing I'm bringing to this table. It's not like I'm just beating myself up, oh, I'm so, no, it's like in the presence of the majesty and the holiness of Jesus, we realize there's just nothing I'm bringing to this table. If I sat down with Elon Musk and we had a financial discussion, honestly, I'm not bringing anything to that table, Okay? That's how it is in the, in the presence of Christ. We just realize, I, I'm, this is a one-way street. And secondly, again, every genuine encounter with Christ, it then leads to a desire to have more of this Jesus because we're seeing his beauty, we're seeing his goodness, we're seeing his holiness, and we're like, I want more of that. I know I bring nothing to it, I have no right to ask to have more, but I just, I just do, I gotta be honest. And as we desire more of Jesus, as we walk more closely with him, we inevitably begin to look more like Jesus. That's how we find the answer to that tension. How do we keep the gospel of grace and yet how we live matters? Walk closely with Jesus. He'll remind you over and over again, look, this is by grace. We're receiving by grace, but he'll also, he'll fire your heart up to want to be like him. And it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be like Jesus. Again, going back to Galatians 5, he says, and there's an active component to this. He says, walk by the Spirit. 
Uh, it's interesting, he does not say lie down in the Spirit. He does not say sleep in the Spirit. He does not say rest in the Spirit. He says walk. And of course, he doesn't mean, hey, go for a walk in the neighborhood, although maybe you should go for a walk in the neighborhood, uh, specifically on the second Saturday of the month at 6.30 p.m. But anyways, he's not talking about actually walking. It's, it's a common Hebrew term for all of your life, right? Psalm 1, blesses man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. How do you... How do you do all of your life? Do that, the overall way of doing life, and do it in, by, with the Spirit. Again, he doesn't say walk by, in, with your spiritual disciplines, and you will not gratify the flesh, and you will produce the fruits of the Spirit. He does not say walk by, in, with your church commitment, and you will not gratify the flesh, and you will produce the fruits of the Spirit. He does not even say walk by your scripture reading, and you will not gratify the flesh. It is walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the flesh, and you'll begin to produce the fruits of the Spirit. So what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? And again, when you translate that, it could be by the Spirit, it could be in the Spirit, it could be with the Spirit. It's this all-encompassing sense. What does it mean? Well, with a little help again from Richard Loveless, to walk by the Spirit means a life that is grounded in a relationship of believing dependence on the Spirit. It is, it, it, it is, it is a life that is grounded in a relationship of believing dependence upon the Spirit. Not that we come to the Spirit as a peer, like, oh, he's my buddy, he's gonna help. No, we're walking every day in dependence upon the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live like Christ. And in the end, it's only the Spirit that can help us, and it's only by the Spirit that we can actually overcome the flesh, the devil, and the world, as the saying goes. It's all by grace. And so the second aspect of spiritual maturity is a growing relationship of daily dependence upon the Holy Spirit. To be spiritually mature means first, as we mentioned, we're grounded in the gospel of grace. We're believing the, the witness of the spirit that we are children of God because of what Christ has done. And the second part is that we are now growing in a daily relationship of dependence upon the spirit. We're asking the spirit we're, to, to, to make us more like Christ. We're depending on him to make us what we can't be on our own. That leads us to putting to death the works of the flesh and producing the fruits of the Spirit. Now, I have a quick application on the second point. And first, I wanna, I wanna speak to our younger members. I don't say young. Age is so relevant, or so, sorry, so subjective. Uh, if you feel young, you're young. If you feel old, you're old. But for those who might be younger, it's much easier to understand what I've just said than to live it out. It's just, I, I'm not saying anything that's particularly complicated understand walking by the Spirit means a life of daily dependence upon the Spirit. We all can understand that pretty quickly. Understanding it is easy. Living it out is very difficult. As Paul says, knowledge puffs up quickly and love builds up very slowly. So my point is, again, if you're younger and you're looking at your life and you're like, I'm not where I want to be. I want to be living a life of dependence on the Spirit. I'm just not where I want to be at this time. My encouragement is, it takes time. Don't be discouraged. The, 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 the rate of spiritual growth is the Holy Spirit's prerogative, not ours. Walk daily with him, and he'll, he'll handle, handle the rest. Second encouragement, again, for our younger 
members is, is again, it's easier to understand, and it's very likely, especially if you're the reading type who likes to get into theology and Bible, it's just almost guaranteed that your theological and biblical understanding will far outstrip your spiritual maturity. It's just the way it works. But let that humble you. Because the more we know, the more we want to speak. But until we have spiritual maturity, there's very little that's probably worth for us to say. So be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. Remember that spiritual maturity and the wisdom and the perspective it brings is not conferred by a college, it's not conferred by a seminary. I can't believe I'm saying this. It's not even conferred by an impressive library. It only comes from decades of walking in humble dependence upon the Spirit of God. That's my encouragement for our younger members, for our older members. Again, I'm not saying old. I'm saying older, however you might want to define that. My encouragement to you, dear brothers and sisters, is, is to beware of resting on your laurels. Uh, many of you have, have, have followed the Lord faithfully for decades. And beware of saying, okay, I've done this. That's enough. I'm done. There's always always more to know of Jesus. There's always a deeper reliance upon the Spirit to experience. My encouragement is let the last 10, 20, 30 years of your life be more Spirit-filled, more dependent upon the Spirit than the previous 10, 20, 30 years of your life. So that's the second part of spiritual maturity is, is, is um, the Spirit empowers us to live like Christ. The third aspect of spiritual maturity is that the Holy Spirit empowers us for mission. Here we're going to flip over to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Again, this Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. So follow on as I read that. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now I want to make an observation. Even at the very beginning after the disciples have seen Jesus crucified, they've seen him resurrected, they spent 40 days having one, having a, you know, intensive time of teaching from Jesus. They're still getting the mission wrong. They still think it's about some political kingdom. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And I think what this should show us is that Christians, we, we Christians, we've always been very, very good at misunderstanding why we're here. <laughs> From the beginning, it's just we're gifted at getting the mission wrong. Sometimes churches will, will, will subtly make the mission a preoccupation with church facilities. I've been to churches where all the money, all the resources, all the time is given to making the sanctuary as beautiful as possible. The lawn is immaculate. The landscaping is breathtaking. Everything is given towards making this building beautiful. I've seen churches that have a, a, a preoccupation with building a Christian community. If you know Rod Dreher and his kind of Benedict option, I think this is his weakness. It's, it's like the mission is to create these deep friendships and relationships, and we're going to give everything towards just this internal focus on making this the most life-giving, deep relationships possible. Of course, there's other churches 
that put the preoccupation with doctrinal purity. We're going to have the perfect theology that covers every possible scope of theological teaching, and we're going to get it all right, and that's what we're here for. And here's the thing is that all of those are important. It's such a blessing to have a church. Talk to a church planner who's meeting in, in a school and has to set up not just like get ready music, but has to set up the entire sanctuary every Sunday. It's exhausting trying to find a, you know, a, a family who will host 40 kids for youth group every week. Like it's a, having a building is a gift, and we want to be good stewards, right? Christian community is so important. Doctrinal uh, purity is so important. It's just that none of them are the point. They're not the mission. And as I was thinking, I was like, what? Okay, I don't think any of those describe our potential mission drift. What would we potentially get it wrong on? And this is what I think. I think our temptation will be to make stability the mission. And we're a church of 45, and there's wonderful things in being that small. We know each other in a way that I've never experienced in a church before. But it can feel very unstable. And so it's harder to weather when a family leaves. It's harder to weather financial downturns. It feels unstable. And so there's a desire, Lord, bring us more people that we might be more stable so we might feel like we're gonna be here for many years to come. And I think that's a good thing. I pray, every, I pray every week, God, bring us more people who will labor with us in the work you have for us. But it's not the goal. That's not the mission, to just be stable, to reach some, whatever number of members that would be where we would feel stable. Instead, what is the mission? Verse eight. But you will be witnesses, my witnesses, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The mission of every church is to bear witness to what we have seen and what we know about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And this mission is so important to Jesus Christ that he sends his spirit to empower us for that for that sole purpose, to empower us in this mission. Again, verse eight, but you will receive power. We go out in weakness and foolishness with a gospel that is frankly ridiculous to most of the world, according to the world's logic, but we go out clothed with God himself and his own power. This is what Jesus told his disciples and what's really interesting is that this is exactly what happened in the book of Acts. All of Acts, the subtext is watch what happens when the Holy Spirit takes weak, cowardly men and women and fills them with the Spirit. Right, so if you just look at the raw data, this is really interesting. All four of the Gospels tell us that Jesus' disciples abandoned him on the night of his betrayal. In terms of ancient history, when you're looking at uh, how do we know something really happened, to have four independent sources is like the gold standard. If this didn't happen, ain't nothing happened, you know, older than 300 years ago. All of them abandoned him the moment things were looking like they were getting real. They were cowardly. But then after they received the Spirit, according to church tradition, and there's varying levels of, dependent, you know, of, of, of how well we can trust some of these stories, but I think a lot of them are, are, are true, According to church tradition, these same men who abandoned Jesus in fear, listen to what happened to them. Andrew, the disciple Andrew, he died on a cross in a Greek colony. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. The other James, Jesus' brother, was thrown from the temple roof and beaten to death with clubs. The apostle John was one of the few that died of old age, although he lived in exile in Patmos for many years. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. 
Matthew was crucified in Alexandria. Nathaniel was flayed alive and beheaded in Armenia. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Philip was hanged against a pillar in Abyssinia. And Thomas was run through with a lance in India. And not one of them recanted. Men who at the first sign of danger ran for their lives died in horrible ways for their Lord because they were empowered by the Spirit. Jesus promised them, you will receive power. And that is what happened. As they stepped out and took those small steps of faith that seemed weak and, 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 and silly, the, whole, the Spirit of God empowered them and did things through them they could never have imagined. But I'm talking about spiritual empowerment as part of spiritual maturity. Again, um, if maturity is being in a state of full development, and spiritual maturity means we're living a life that's fully developed in the life of the Spirit, and one of the major roles of the Spirit is to empower us for faithful witness, how could our witness not be part of our spiritual maturity? And that's one reason why we as a church are going out into the neighborhood once a month. Uh, something I've come under conviction of in the last couple months. This is why we exist. Not just to reach this neighborhood. We have people in our lives that God wants us to reach. But this is the one place that we all go every week. And so it's the one thing we have in common is this neighborhood. And so we got once a month, empowered by the Spirit. We don't have a methodology. We're not going out with a survey. We're just going to direct us to those whom are searching. And every time we've gone out, I've been amazed at the conversations we have as we walk by the Spirit. Now you might be thinking, Mike, I don't think you quite get it. I would rather skin my eyeballs with butter knives than go out and talk to strangers about Jesus. That image is for you as a freebie, okay? <laughs> and I, I get that, I really do. It's, uh, there's a reason it's taken me two and a half years to do this, even though I knew we should be doing this from the day I got here. It's uncomfortable. It really is way out of my comfort zone. But I have just two quick thoughts. First, okay, if you're not ready to do that, or if you're not physically able, or if you work that night, there's, there's reasons why we can't go out in that kind of a way. What is one step you can take? Right? If you're not going to be able to join us going out, or you're not ready to join us going out into the neighborhood, that's okay, but what is one step you can take? And one step you can take is praying. Uh, when we go out, uh, we are on the front lines of a, of a cosmic spiritual warfare. The, the New Testament tells us the, the, the war that we have is not against flesh and blood, it's against the principalities, the systems of, of demonic evil that we don't see, but they're present. And when we step out, Satan wants to destroy us because he does not want us going into this neighborhood with the goal of just talking to people about Christ. So pray for us. You may not be able to meet us here, but set aside that time. It's the second Saturday of every month once it rains and it's a Sunday. But set aside 6.30 to 7.30. You're going to pray for us because we desperately need it. And in fact, I'd love to get some kind of technology that we could send out live updates as we're out there. Um, if someone, I'm not a very technologically proficient person, but of all young people, if you know of something, we could send out kind of like a, you know, not like a public announcement, but like kind of like a, a text message to those who want to opt in, like, hey, we just talked to so-and-so and, and had a great conversation, pray for them. That would help those who are at home who are praying. But anyways, what is one step you can take to join God in the mission, to join Jesus in his mission? 
Secondly, uh, uh, we, I just say it like this. If you're not joining Christ in his mission, you're missing out. You're missing out. Missing out on a major part of life with the Spirit. There, if, if, if there's no active participation in your life in the mission of God, there's a whole aspect of Christian joy and encouragement and community that you're, you're just you're missing out on. So in conclusion, spiritual maturity involves all three of these. It involves a grounding in the gospel of grace that we know I've been adopted, not because I'm going out you know, in the neighborhood and sharing Christ, not because I'm living in this very moral lifestyle. In fact, I was adopted when I was unlovable. But God loved me, and that makes me lovely. We're grounded in that. And by the way, let me, let me pause before I go through these three. Uh, and, well, let me keep going. And, and the point is that these are like a three-legged stool. To be spiritually mature means we have all three of them, and we're growing in all three of them. And if we take one out, the stool falls. And so as we kind of do a quick summary of these again, I just want you to, to think, which, which is the one that, that, that you feel like you need to grow in? Maybe it begins with repentance. But seeking God's face, Lord, make me grow in my conviction that I'm adopted. Make me grow in, 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 in drawing near to Christ and walking by the Spirit. Make me grow in a burden to, to really want to share the gospel with people. Just ask the Lord to, to, to speak that to you as, as we kind of just go over this again. But again, the three marks of spiritual maturity is being grounded in the gospel of grace. That, Jesus, that through Jesus' death in our place, we are adopted by grace permanently into the family of God. We don't need to prove ourselves anymore. We don't need to find love and belonging because those are given to us freely by the one who matters most, by God himself. And, and, and I mean, holy smokes, if God said it, who cares what anyone else thinks, right? We're grounded in that. But second, aspect of spiritual maturity as sinners redeemed by grace, we want all of our lives to be Christ's, every part of it. And so we walk by the Spirit. We live in humble dependence on the power of the Spirit to live like Jesus. And lastly, to be spiritually mature, our hearts must beat with the mission of God to see a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping around the throne, to see Germans in Leipzig coming to Jesus, to see Guatemalans coming to Jesus, to see Cambodians coming to Jesus, to see residents in our neighborhood coming to know Jesus. We have to have not just hearts that beep, we also have, to, we also have to have feet that are willing to go. Let's pray. Father, where you are stirring in our hearts, may we receive that as grace. I plead with you, if there is any guilt or shame, I'm sorry if it's my fault if I've preached wrong. But where you are working, may we receive it as grace to draw us closer to you. Because we've, we've tried other things and we know our hearts are restless anywhere, anywhere except with you. So refine us as you must because we want more of you and we're not satisfied. Show us what spiritual maturity is, and we walk in him. Pray us in Christ's name. Amen.